And with me this morning is clinical psychiatrist from IMU, Dr. Philip George. Good morning, Dr. Philip. Good morning, Charles. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Um, but we had some, you know, sad news um, of late. The late South Korean actress Jeon Mi Seun had called her father before apparently committing suicide. This is reported by the China Press. The mm. police found that 20 minutes before she took her life at around 2 a.m., she had called her father. And that evening, there were many calls from friends and relatives that followed but was never picked up. And her agency later confirmed that she had suffered from depression. It's a very sad state of affairs, really. I mean, mm. what are some of the telltale signs of someone about to commit suicide? Well, usually suicide does not have a single cause. And I think in the case of actress Jeon, it was reported that she had depression. And 90% of suicide victims have a history of depression. But she also had a death in her family, and her mother was not well as as well, apparently. Mm -hmm. So with suicide, there's risk factors. And that can include things like mental disorder, alcohol and substance use, hopelessness, history of trauma or abuse as a child, previous suicide, people who have history of suicide in the family, lack of social support, and the list goes on and on. But some of the main warning signs are if people are starting to talk about dying or looking for a way to kill themselves or talking about hopelessness and you know, speaking about being trapped or being a burden to others, and then a sudden increase in alcohol or drug use, and a change in moods, like, you know, suddenly being more anxious, agitated, or behaving recklessly. And very often they may start to isolate themselves or withdraw. And there are often final acts like what John did. Right. Calling a loved one or old friends making a will, yeah. writing a suicide note. Well, even posting, you know, cryptic posts on social media, I find um, that could be a warning sign, no? Yep, yep, mm-hmm. absolutely. I mean, now we have different forms of, you know, communication. And so sometimes people send out these messages to, you know, inform others that right. they have made this decision. Okay, if you spot some of these signs, how can we stall, I guess, the conversation before, um, you know, something bad happens so we can get them help? Well, I think the important thing is for us to understand that people who take their lives really don't want to die but they just want to stop hurting. And, you know, they most definitely may not ask for help. And I'm sure in John did not actually maybe ask for help, but maybe, you know, it was identified by a father that something's not right here. But if you identify these warning signs, it's important to talk openly about it mm-hmm. and uh, not make the person suicidal. And I think the main thing is to be to be able to listen and to be sympathetic and avoid being judgmental. All right. When we come back, we'll take a look at this article which says that teen friendships can shape your mental health as a young adult. That's up next after Black Eyed Peas on Light. On My Matters this morning, we're with Dr. Philip George, and uh, research has shown that teen friendships can help shape your mental health as a young adult. And uh, research shows that having a strong network can shape our behavior and career success, boosting happiness and health. So, Dr. Philip, how does having a network of friends ensure good mental health, especially in the young? Well, uh, this is not really big rocket science. <laughs> I think it's quite obvious that there should be a correlation. But this is a pivotal study because 
It's looking at 14,800 people from adolescence right until adulthood. And it's it's just only recently been published in the Journal of Pediatrics. But I, I really got you know excited knowing that now we have evidence to show that the more connected we are, the better our mental health and our, even our physical health can be. Uh, so yeah, basically, uh, connectedness can have long-lasting protective effects across many health outcomes, and that includes mental health, violence, sexual behavior, and substance abuse, and even physical health. It goes on to suggest that, in, in fact, increasing family and school connectedness during adolescence can promote overall health in adulthood. How does this work? Well, consider the complete opposite. People who are lonely. Mm-hmm. We know that there's higher risk of depression, anxiety, substance abuse, and suicide in those who are lonely. So if we encourage this from young, it becomes a pattern that lives on, you know, through adulthood. Right. But, you know, I remember my own uh, teenagehood, <laughs> teenage yes. years, yep. and, uh, you know, looking at my own teenagers sometimes, there are moments when your teenage is sullen and doesn't want to socialize, and there are yep. teens out there who feel very disconnected to their peers. So how yeah. can we help this group of young people? You know, people around the world have identified that this is something we need to work on. It needs to get into the curriculum. In Scotland, they have a program called Link Up. It's enabling more than thousands of people to come together and connect and build relationships. In Australia, in Melbourne, there was a study done by George Patton that looked at social connectedness in schools and communities and made it part of the curriculum for the children to actually be involved in activities that involved others. And they showed that they could improve mental health even while they were adolescent. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think these are things that we can actually encourage people to do. All right. Well, coming up, we've been reading this uh, story in the news. A Form 2 Kwantan student had uh, been (laughs) binge drinking and passed out after a drinking session with his peers. Uh, We're going to talk about the stupid things we do as teenagers (laughs) next here on Light. It's a light breakfast with Shaz on My Matters. Dr. Philip George with us this morning. And in the news, a Form 2 student who passed out after a drinking session near his school was rushed to the hospital. The boy was supposed to attend the afternoon session, but instead skipped classes and joined two schoolmates in a drinking binge involving cheap liquor. So, you know, I, I don't know what to think about this. We've all done stupid <laughs> things when we were young. Uh, I guess the question is, you know, it's a peer pressure thing, isn't it? it, it is it better? Better for for young people to learn from their mistakes, or would it be better having healthy exposure from parents at home? Yeah, well, I think it comes down to setting rules, and uh, I think it's important for all parents to know that they are that, that the brain is actually a developing organ. It gets fully developed at the age of 18. And until then, whatever children get exposed to, it can have a deleterious effect on their brain and their, up and their development as well. So the areas of the brain that actually get fully developed and are important in us making you know, some of those important choices is the prefrontal cortex. And that's an area that helps you decide things like judgment and decision making and you know all these things all the tools you need when it comes to saying no to substance use and so if you're exposed too early you lose control of that and it can typically sometimes then lead to you know maybe habitual use and regular use and then Mm -hmm. dependence and a lot of dependence to substances actually have their origins in adolescence right so 
I think it's important for first, you know, put the rules down for, you know, as parents. Uh, and enforcement is essential. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can understand this kid drinking with others, you know, at his age and yeah. not being caught out uh, by enforcement or, you know, by the shopkeeper or whoever it is who sold this alcohol. Exactly. You know? And the other thing is, of course, <laughs> you know, we all have different levels of tolerance. If it's, you know, your first time, your tolerance level is very low. Mm-hmm. And so a small quantity of alcohol can actually hit off, you know, high blood alcohol levels that cause very bad effects, including coma and uh, unconsciousness, which this boy, I think, experienced. So it's, you know, it's another uh, effect of uh, alcohol as well as the other thing is that illegal or illicit uh, alcohol has levels that are not, you know, measurable. Yeah, regulated. It's just really fortunate that nothing worse happened to this boy. I mean, he's fine now. Yes, yes, that's right. But I think it's important that Mm -hmm. we all understand that, you know, we should take from this that we have, uh, you know, sort of boundaries and where we can actually use substances and, and we should follow those boundaries because typically when children start using a substance at an early age, they go on to using harder substances. It's called the gateway theory. So if you start smoking at the age of 10 or 11 or start drinking at the age of 13 or 14, then very usually you will be introduced to more harder drugs that are hard to come off. Wow. Okay. Well, definitely something to consider and look at if you've got well teenagers, you yeah. know, wanting to try things. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, coming up, antidepressants can reduce empathy for those in pain. It is an article in ScienceDaily.com. We'll take a look at that next with Dr. Philip on light. On My Matters with me is Dr. Philip George, consultant psychiatrist from IMU. Now, novel insights of interdisciplinary collaboration involving social neuroscientists, neuroimaging experts and psychiatrists from the University of Vienna and the Medical University of Vienna show that antidepressant treatment can lead to impaired empathy regarding perception of pain and not just in the state of depression itself. This is interesting. I mean, how will, you know, being on antidepressants, how can Mm -hmm. that affect the patient's interaction with, uh, well, society at large? Well, I think the important thing is to understand that this doesn't happen to everyone. It has been reported that there can be this thing called emotional blunting that happens when people are on antidepressants. Meaning feeling just numb to everything. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Less able to cry or laugh, uh, less empathy for others perhaps, not being able to respond with the same level of enjoyment for certain things. Mm -hmm. But this happens in maybe about 30 percent of people on antidepressants and it varies from one antidepressant to another so some people find the response with a certain type of antidepressant but when they change they find the response completely gone and uh, it's also been identified to occur more in men than in women but the jury is still out there is this a side effect or is this some residual symptoms of depression that haven't been treated by the antidepressant that we're using. Right. Because depression is a multi-system disorder and it affects different parts of the brain Mm -hmm. and it's not just the mood. So a lot of people, after starting antidepressants, feel their moods lifted. Right. They feel, you know, no more depressed and, you know, their sleep and appetite's all better. But then this emotional blunting comes in and so it could be that they need to do more in terms of therapy, 
It could be lifestyle change. It could be outdoor activity, mm -hmm. exercise. You know, all of that may be what will actually help with the emotional blunting. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we're still in the process of understanding that. But I think if it does happen, it's important to discuss that with your doctor and see whether change in medication is required. All right. Well, coming up uh, in the UK, three out of four MPs probably have poor mental health. That's alarming. I wonder how <laughs> if this reflects uh, here locally as well. well we're going to take a look at that article next here on Light. And taking a look at this article in The Guardian in the UK, three out of four MPs probably have poor mental health. Distress and depression are more common than in other high-level jobs, according to this study. Um, interesting. I mean, do you think this reflects um, on, you know, everyday people, everyday workers, as opposed to those in high-level kind of government uh, leadership positions? Well, I think there are certain <laughs> specifics about MPs that may actually make it higher among them. And uh, I think one is there's often high expectations, you know, and um, they're often in the spotlight. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they have to be answerable and, you know, give comments and be in the papers. And people can be very critical about what they say as well. You know, you've got some people who are happy with, you know, how an MP performs, but then others can be the complete opposite. And very often they have long hours, you know, yes. and that can actually trigger off a lot of stress. They're, they have less ability to enjoy normal day-to-day -day things. I mean, I don't think they'll be able to go to the Kopitiam and, or <laughs> Mama Shop and Lepa. <laughs> and, you know, and there's there are incidences where MPs get bullied and harassed and mm -hmm. abused if it's, you know, even just verbal. And, you know, sometimes they have very little in terms of uh, life-work balance. Okay. And that typically is going to increase mental health problems. Right. Um, of course, the other big challenge is, are they willing to look for help mm -hmm. when that happens? Right. And if they are willing, I guess uh, talk therapy is one thing, isn't it? Absolutely. And yeah. Talk therapy, lifestyle change, working on, you know, stress management. Mm -hmm. I think all of that is really essential and important. All right. So even if you're not an MP, well, if this is affecting your daily life, go get some help. Yeah. Yes. Sometimes even exercise and being out outdoors is, is, you know, it's a step in the right direction, isn't it? Yep, yep, absolutely. All right, so what do you have um, coming up, Dr. Philip? Yeah, on the 24th to the 26th of July, we're organizing the 9th Malaysian Conference on Healthy Aging. And the theme this year is Aging, Health and Community. It's being held at the uh, Pasatuan Alumni University Malaya Clubhouse, which is on Jalan Susu Damansara, and organized by the Malaysian Healthy Aging Society. But it's, you know, trying to get a holistic approach to healthy aging uh, in Malaysia. And that includes things like infrastructure, health, psychology, you know, uh, everything that's related to aging. Uh, because this is an area that we've been neglecting for far too long. So if people want to get more information, they can go on to mcha at healthyaging.org. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning on Mind Matters. Thank you, Shaz. Dr. Philip George, consultant psychiatrist at IMU.